Research from the B2B agency Allen in the UK states that the majority of UK business leaders think that most B2B marketing is not fit for purpose and they'd like to see a different approach. In their survey, 82% said they find B2B marketing boring and repetitive. The C-suite is looking for a move away from traditional product-led marketing towards an approach that embraces emotions to drive B2B buying behavior. Hi, I'm your host, Connor Byrne, and welcome back to That's What I Call Marketing. Today, I'm joined by somebody who's going to help us with all of this. It's the Global Head of Research at the LinkedIn B2B Institute, John Lombardo. In his role, John researches how brand marketing contributes to cash flows and brings an outside-in approach to marketing, looking to apply mental models from other disciplines to marketing. Prior to LinkedIn, John led GE's Social Media Centre of Excellence, where he focused on commercial efforts across major social platforms. Today, we chat about John's path to LinkedIn, which includes going via China and how the B2B Institute was established, how B2B marketers can get more status, influence and budget, and think about how to build a case for brand building like brand building itself. So play the long term. We also talk about where to start with all the research that is available from the B2B Institute. We discuss how there seems to be more agreement in marketing academia, but there's still the job to be done to filter all of this down to all practitioners. So let's get into it. John, thank you for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. Great to great to have you here. Thank you for having me, Connor. It's an honor. Well, listen, I'll, we'll get straight into it. Um, I am fascinated by your by your path. You, you've had kind of a really interesting career, innovation, online media, social media, content, research. How have you navigated so many different things and parts to your to your career? Honestly, I'd like to tell you that there was some grand strategy, but... <laughs> You know, often the moment that we in we are, we are in shapes the decisions that we make. And after I graduated from university, Web 2.0 became, you know, the most exciting opportunity it felt like in the world for a period of time. And obviously, many companies like LinkedIn were born out of that 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 period. And of course, there's people talking about Web 3.0 now, which tells you a little yeah. bit about where we are today. I don't necessarily <laughs> buy into the Web 3.0 stuff, but at least there was a Web 2.0 before Web 3.0, and 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 then you had the Obama campaign. You know, following that in the United yeah. States, and there was a real focus on online media, social media, and I still remember Google saying, "Spend ten percent of your money in 2010." You know, when I was on a political campaign, so it was just the dominant, I guess, shift in the world, and you kind of have to, or like let's consider it a wave. You have to kind of ride those waves. It feels like to be successful. That's where the opportunities are created. So honestly, I graduated. I went and lived in China for a while. I started a, a Web 2.0 company with a friend of mine. We got very interested in Web 2.0 and and kind of the social networking world. That led me to really to a political campaign where social media had become a, an important way to market a candidate. And then ultimately, I ended up at GE starting in B2B, their first ever social media presence. You know, obviously, that was a big deal for a very big, storied American company. And then got to LinkedIn. So, you know, I'd like to say, like, I knew it would happen and I predicted <laughs> it and I invested in it, but it, it kind of happened to me. And maybe I was lucky <laughs> enough or smart enough to know that I should should continue with it. Yeah, that's great. Well, look, I started in hotels. So, there's, you know, don't talk to me about a weird part. <laughs> At least there yeah. was some linearity to it. Tell just a bit about China. How did you end up in China setting up a company? It's another one where I would like to say, wow, I thought really far ahead and and I knew that it was going to be an enormous economy. But honestly, I was going to a school. They were I was taking Spanish. They offered Chinese. 
I thought that seems like an interesting opportunity. I took the Chinese course. And I think for many people, what happens is you have a professor, you know, or a teacher that that really impacts you and, and changes your life in some way. And I had yeah. a really great professor. We got along incredibly well. And I ended up through that going and living in China, actually, as a 17 year old in Beijing for six months. And I ended up living in China for I think five consecutive years after I graduated from university in Beijing and Nanjing and in Shanghai and made a bunch of friends as you often do in the expat community and had a bunch of wonderful experiences, including working in finance for a bit and then also working to start this company in in web 2.0. That's that's incredible. Yeah. And it is interesting kind of those people that have that kind of impact on, on your life and where, where it takes you. Yeah. Yeah. Bring me to the moment in in LinkedIn where there was a conversation about setting up the the B two B Institute. I, I, I'm kind of trying to paint the picture of you kind of saying we should. This is a thing we should do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure it isn't quite this simple, but I can trace it to a request that came from OMD. They said, "Listen, you're the biggest B two B platform. You should have." some ideas on trends in B2B, you know, our, our agency and our clients want to understand what the trends are in B2B today, LinkedIn, you should have those ideas. We didn't have anything quite formal like that, but I ended up putting together with another gentleman who you may know, Peter Weinberg, putting together this B2B trends presentation. I I believe I gave it first in New York. They were like, Hey, we really like this. Why don't you go do it in Chicago? We went and did it in Chicago. Then they were like, Hey, can you do it in Miami? And I couldn't do it, but Peter went and did it in Miami. And it turned out that the same content in Chicago and in New York and Miami was incredibly appealing. And they asked us to go to San Francisco. We ended up taking it to London and Singapore. And it was just the kind of thing where you sometimes have to just recognize a good idea. And you mostly recognize it because it appears to the success replicates or generalizes in different markets and for different audiences and for different companies. And so that was just an instance where if you were talking Silicon Valley speak, they would say that they pulled the product out of you. They pulled okay, the narrative yeah. out of us. And then they liked the narrative. We had a bit of narrative market fit, let's call it. And then subsequently, Peter and I have produced, you know, three or four different B2B trends reports, you know, over the last five or six years. Now we have a team that works on it with us. They do great work as well. So it's become our franchise. We believe very strongly in franchises. So it's become our core franchise, B2B trends. And from that became, well, we're doubling down on B2B. Then maybe let's talk about setting up a bit of a think tank internally LinkedIn. And that's where the B2B Institute became a thing. Amazing. It's, um, I, I, I've spoken to Thomas Sparta and he, he was talking and this, I thought about this, maybe it was a, it was one of these moments where you kind of had the, the customer need and then the company need and, you know, this kind of value creation, the V zone as, as Thomas Sparta calls it. And I thought maybe it seems to be that what's the commerciality, the commercial angle of it for, for LinkedIn. Well, a part of it is simply the more, I mean, the the LinkedIn mission statement, which I think is a very valuable one, is making the world's professionals more productive and successful, you know, and specifically, but there's three lines of business at LinkedIn, four lines of business, actually. In the marketing business, it's really about making B2B marketers more productive and successful. The more productive and successful they are at articulating the value that marketing creates for the broader firm across hiring, marketing, selling, financing, all these different things. The more budget B2B marketers will get, the more money ultimately LinkedIn as the dominant player in B2B will make. So it's a bit of a rising tide lifts all boats situation. That's primarily or generally how LinkedIn makes money from a lot of the work that we do. We do have a very specific program, though, we call B2B Edge because we're very focused on giving, you know, advertising is a competitive sport, of course. 
right? There are cancellation yeah. effects. If you market and I market, we cancel each other out. If I market more than you do, then I likely assume my creative is any good and have good media. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to gain market share. So we try to put program, put our, put our partners through a program called B2B edge, which gives them an edge in the marketplace. And the four things we focus on are strategy, creative distribution and measurement. And increasingly there's a, a sales and marketing alignment a program that we're thinking about putting together as well. So that's kind of like generally everyone gets smarter. B2B makes more money, has more influence. We do well. Specifically, we have these modules. We put, uh, you know, customers that are excited about kind of being on the edge through. Okay. Yeah. It is because it is interesting. Like with these, with these things, like recently we've obviously seen the CMO club with Salesforce has been discontinued. Like that seemed like a read. I mean, it was a great initiative and it was a brilliant thing to have, but obviously Clearly, in the the environment that we're all operating in, Salesforce made a decision that it wasn't commercially viable anymore for them to to run this. But obviously, you're proving and have proven the commercial value of the B two B Institute within within LinkedIn. Yeah, and 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 we do it in a you know our business is primarily a a lead generation business, but the work that we do is actually focused on you know what you would call brand building if you were P and G or Unilever. What we often, I often call brand advertising. What the C-suite probably probably needs it to be called demand creation because the C-suite thinks yeah. in economic terms. So supply and demand, I think, is the right mental model for them. And then brand advertising becomes about demand creation, and lead generation becomes about demand capture. And then there are ways that you invest, obviously, in demand creation, demand capture. But yeah, we, we do a very different thing to what the rest of LinkedIn does. Let's call it collectively. So. That there's a harmony in that. There's a, a division of labor to go to Adam Smith in 1776. <laughs> um, well, interesting now you talk about the the brand building because I think that's that, that is a fundamental thing that the institute believes that brand building is the single greatest marketing investment. Yeah. I don't want to overstate that if I Absolutely. am, but and you know creates the the competitive edge. Now, look, I agree, and I think there's lots of evidence that that does agree, but. Like one of the things is like if you're if you're a small or medium sized B two B company, uh, how can you start that conversation about focusing on brand? Because I think we've all seen or been in situations where the question is, you know, well, where are my leads coming from? And and a marketer is saying, but 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 brand is really important. How how do you think people need to navigate that conversation? This is a this could take the rest of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's a. Uh... It's really quite difficult. In B2B especially, generally it's either product and engineering or it is sales that lead the organization. That's obviously yeah. a market contrast to you go work at Diageo, it's marketing-led. You go work at Coke, it's marketing-led. So we don't run the P&L. We don't make the decisions. We're generally not even the secondary party in making the decision. We're typically the tertiary party, right? So that's a real problem. So how do we actually get to more influence, more status, more budget. I think, you know, as sad as it is, it is honestly probably starting with helping sales teams to produce better narratives, better decks so they can go have good sales meetings. It is probably helping to run smarter lead gen campaigns that focus less on the necessarily the product and maybe more on the need, the customer need. So it's honestly probably reframing some of that stuff. Maybe it's trying to help. I think Ritson has a really good idea about helping use the kind of marketing language or marketing communication to reframe price increases. So there are ways that marketing and a marketing mindset can kind of tap in and help, let's call it the, the more demand capture part of the business. And I think as you get more, 
as you get more confidence in doing that, and as you get more confidence, frankly, from your partner sales, they'll then say, okay, it's actually, let's, let's, let's actually run a brand campaign and maybe we'll do a, like a holdout. We'll just do it in like, you know, Peter and I had a funny experience once where we went to um, Tokyo to present and we kind of call this uh, the Tokyo test and LinkedIn <laughs> doesn't really exist in Tokyo. You have lots of okay. Microsoft products and you have Facebook and people use honestly Facebook to do what LinkedIn would do in other countries. And we showed up and there was two of us to present and there was one customer, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the Tokyo, we failed the Tokyo test, which is we had no brand there. And because we had no brand there, we had no pull, you know, and we had, and so nobody came to the event where in other markets we would go where LinkedIn was very popular. Lots of clients would show up. So, yeah. you know, it's ultimately probably starting with sales and sales support. And then it's helping with lead gen, which is what marketing controls. And then there's probably ways to either point out Tokyo tests like, hey, we failed here because we don't have a brand. Or it's probably something more like everyone generally understands that brand's important. So it may be that we we just take 10% or 20% of the budget. And then every year we, we show some success. And we can talk a little bit about what success should look like. But we go from 20% one year to 30% the next year to 40%. And then it takes five to 10 years to flip the, flip the script, so to speak, or flip the budget. Really interesting. It's like it, it, it in itself is almost like a long-term strategy as yeah. brand building is, right? Do you know what I mean? Like internally, you're you're playing a long game. I think that's really interesting because a lot of people, I sorry, generalize, but people certainly, you know, who who believe in this in this stuff and believe in brand building and and you know bringing that to be to be definitely struggle. And what what's interesting from what I'm hearing you say is don't don't try kind of chew it all at once right don't take like don't take a bite of the, the entire apple and try figure it all out like find small wins along the way and actually some of those wins are going to be in the areas that you can control so control the controllables right. and then right. figure out some other ways of approving you know probably through lower investment as well because i think that scares people as well but when you say the word brand everyone's like oh that's expensive yeah and there's another way that we have come to think about it and honestly, I think this idea comes primarily from Phil Barden, you know, who I don't remember the name of his book off the top of my head, but it's decoded. Right? Yeah, he, he's yeah. I think really quite smart and has this idea of, of frames. And and then Jenny Romaniak has her ideas around kind of mental availability and yeah, and category entry points. We've come to think of it almost more like situations, which you probably would call occasions or triggers in, in CPG. Situations is probably the language we would use in B2B primarily because what we're all trying to do is get a salesperson in a room with a client, you know, yeah. in a buying situation to answer questions, give them confidence, get them to buy LinkedIn. And I really like the category entry points framework because it's a little, I actually think of it more as like situational awareness. Here are the situations that matter to the customer. And when yeah. you have that kind of framework, it, it brings the marketing mindset to bear across all of the four P's. So it's really like, does my product meet these situational needs? Uh, is my pricing catering to maybe one or two different types of customers? Placement, do I have it in the right places online and offline? Are my salespeople going to the right places online and offline? And then am I promoting it using customer language and customer needs rather than am yeah. I talking about my brand purpose or my brand tagline? So the Denny framework around kind of market research to both measure your your, your situational awareness across key situations today, but then to use it across the entire four P's across the entire year and then measure it again to show, hey, we lifted awareness in all the key buying situations. That's going to help us to get more customers, have better sales meetings, you know, build better products. Like that's holistically how it has to come together yeah. from a marketing perspective. So I would say Jenny's approach 
has informed a lot of our way of thinking about in B2B, the, the sales team is so important and the customer situation yes. is important to focus on situations. That'll give you more, I think, credibility with the sales teams and the finance teams. Then ultimately that's kind of what you want to work back from is like the sales meeting, the deck, the talking points, the voice of customer. Yeah, I, I that the whole point about the like the importance of the sales team and I, most as you say B two B orgs like they're, well they're heavily sales whether yeah. it's led or not but like the sales element is is so crucial and it's the pressure on you know quarters and not even quarters months you know how are we doing and and you know it's it's intense and you know for me it, it, you know when when I got closer to sales I started to understand their world better right like I was in marketing I was in agencies and then I was kind of more working on like tests, but also then brand work. And it was a little bit removed, I think, from the commerciality of the business. And then I started to understand the sales world. I sat in the sales leader meeting on a Friday morning where he'd go around the table and go, give me the update, give me the update. And that pressure, I was like, oh, oh, well, this is different. And then you were, I think from a marketing perspective, that allows you think differently about their world and then also communicate what you're doing to help sales, not as a, not as kind of a, I don't love the word support function because I think that has, you know, that kind of be dangerous territory to enter into, but just how you kind of set yourselves up to, to you know, be successful in, in those situations is, is really interesting. And I, I want to move on to some of the work that you have on the, the site. Like if you go on to and just Google B2B Institute, you will find uh, where you need to go. And there's a wealth of information, right? And I was going back looking over it and, you know, I've been lucky to, to read a lot of it previously, but if I went to that today as a, as a B2B marketer who hasn't used the B2B Institute, where would you recommend I start? If I was a, a new B2B marketer, I would honestly go read our How Brands Grow in B2B series. You know, to me, that is, it is, you know, it's among the kinds of people that are going to listen to this podcast, it's incredibly trite, you know, for, for somebody to say, go read How Brands Grow. But we are not the customer and the people that are listening to this podcast are not the marketer. You know, and the reality is that very few people who work in marketing generally, B2B or B2C, but especially who work in B2B, have any idea that the Ehrenberg Bass Institute exists, any idea around their ideas or their laws. So if I were to point someone there, I would say, go read the one pager that Byron wrote about mental and physical availability. It's actually a really crisp financial explanation of the way that companies compete in the marketplace which is based on building mental and physical availability based on building these trading assets that ultimately underpin intangible asset value. So I would say go read that first. I would say the second thing you should do is go read the 95-5 rule by John Dawes, because again, it's not just saying, okay, mental and physical availability matter. It's now allowing you to understand like, well, which, which one is more important and the sequence is important, which one comes first. And, and John does a great job explaining that most people are not in market today. And so it's a primarily a job of building mental availability. And at some point it does become about physical availability, but there's some way to balance the two and sequence the two. So I'd probably read that. And then if you want to go from like, that's the 101 stuff, then you can get into Jenny Romanik stuff, which I think is more the 201. I would read the stuff on category entry points mm-hmm. because that to me is just wonderful thinking around like how you should do really good market research that is much more holistic and much more customer focused, right? It's like here are all the W's and not just the whole process of identifying yeah. them, but prioritizing them and investing in them. And it really gives you the marketing mindset and you get that can help you talk to your product teams about what you're learning from the customer talk to your pricing teams, talk to your sales team. So I would say, you know, go through that curriculum 
and and there's plenty of laws of growth stuff in there as well that you should read yeah. too. But I would say to me, you read mental and physical availability, you read 95-5 rule and you read category entry points and you have, I think, an extraordinary start to to all of the right ideas. Yeah, I, I'm glad you said the 95-5 rule because um, I think it is really important to understand. You might take a moment just to talk about it and maybe duplicate purchase law. And, and the reason I ask is I know a brand whose customers have been defined in, in kind of their work of um, as disinterested disinterested laggards and i <laughs> i thought with that in mind it'd be interesting to to understand for people who may not be aware of the 95.5 rule a, a bit more about that yeah the 95.5 rule is terrific i mean it is it is john went through it actually there's a funny conversation around it which will bring in a lot of the most famous names in the very small world of advertising and marketing that we care about but i i went down peter and i flew down to australia we went to visit ritson in tasmania I had about a thousand drinks with Ritson who can have a thousand <laughs> drinks and still function the next day. I had about a thousand drinks. Peter had about a thousand drinks and Peter and I don't function after a thousand drinks. I woke <laughs> up the next morning in absolutely horrid shape and had to fly to Adelaide to talk to a bunch of professors from Ehrenberg Bass. And in my extremely hungover state, barely functioning, uh, I had a conversation with John Dawes and somehow the 60-40 rule came up, you know, the Bennett and field work, which I think is, you know, uh, often pilloried for unfair reasons. I mean, it's much more nuanced than people realize, but the fact that it's yeah. so simple has been why it's yeah. so good. People take the headline and go, huh. <laughs> Right, but it's not really quite right. But anyhow, John Dawes was like, yeah, it's not really a 60-40 rule. I'd say, honestly, it's more like a 95-5 rule, you know? And I was like, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? And he said, you know, based on what I've read in this category and that category and another category, you know, and these are all B2B categories, most people are not in market to buy a product or service today. They don't have the need for it. So they're not going to buy it. They're not going to think about buying it. So the job there is really to build mental availability. You know, it's, it's the, and I think it's good to kind of talk about, so that's the 95.5. That's, you, you know, they, they're not thinking about you. Your job is to build mental availability with them. It's the, yeah. it's the Geico Gecko in America. It is the Meerkat in, yeah. in the UK and in Ireland. You know, it is just kind of like, I know that brand. And so then when I do enter the market, I'm more likely to buy that brand just because I know that brand or I think about that brand. They're mentally available. But if 95.5 are not doing that, there is 5% that are, are in market and are going to buy. So that's the 95.5 road. It's really about the customer. It's about is the customer in market or out market? Because most B2B marketers spend all of their money like everybody's in market. But they're not. You know, In fact, only one out of 20 yeah. people is in market. So but the interesting thing here is, so I'd ask the very obvious next question, which is, okay, John, if 95% of people are out market and 5% of people are in market, should I spend 95% of my money on brand advertising, building mental availability, and only 5% on lead generation trying to capture customers? And he said, no, you shouldn't. He said, I actually think you should spend 50-50 because though it's very important to build mental availability, you know, companies have to deliver results in the short term as well. And competition yeah. Yeah. against customers is fierce. And so the pragmatic reality of the industry and of the business is that you have to also win current customers. And so, you know, the 95.5 rule is a good way to understand where the customer is, but it's not necessarily how you should spend your money. I was surprised. I thought he would surely say, spend it all on mental availability. But in fact, he said you should spend it in a more balanced approach. And it's just like what they would call really, I think, mental and physical availability. Like Byron would say that a lot of the things you'd spend, you know, lead gen isn't really lead gen. It's just more kind of digital availability or mental physical availability yeah yeah it, 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 yeah i mean i think that is because you're you're thinking about all the buyers in your 
category and you need to make sure they're aware. And again, when I think about the smaller, you know, smaller, medium sized B2B companies that, that are kind of thinking, well, I don't have a huge budget and I have to go. I, I specifically know one where they're trying to operate in, in three markets with a really small marketing budget and the pressures on leads. But they're the marketing leader there is kind of saying, I, I believe in, I believe in the, the brand building. And so that, that's a real struggle to, to articulate that and change the behavior of the leadership to say, yes, we're, we're willing to invest in time. And maybe go back to that earlier point of trying some small, small yeah. things first to prove the point. Have you any examples of, or can you think as top of your head, of course, but any examples of, of companies of that kind of smaller size that have done maybe smaller brand building things that have, that have worked, you know, not obviously, Geico Gecko is a wonderful example, but any yeah. any kind of medium, small size companies that are have done it well. You know, I mean, I tend to think more broadly across categories because we mostly work with the bigger companies, but I don't gotcha. necessarily think that. I mean, the data that I've seen indicates on LinkedIn whether you are a big company or a small company. We have data in sales that shows that if people see messages from your company marketing or advertising messages, they're more likely to respond to a salesperson. And that's either accept an in-mail from them or respond to a connection request. We also see that for talent, that the broader reach campaigns you have, you know, which means somebody's seen a message from you, people who've seen a message are more likely to respond to a recruiter than people who haven't seen a message. The same thing is true in lead generation. You know, people who see broader reach campaigns are more likely to become aware of the brand and buy from the brand. So reach matters across the data for hiring, marketing, and selling in LinkedIn. Now, you can actually say, I think that's a critical. Reach maximalism is an idea we believe very strongly in. Reach right. is the most important thing because reach drives penetration and penetration drives everything that's important. But of course, there's another way of thinking about reach. There's reach vis-a-vis -vis or interpreted through the lens of the kind of excess share of voice rule, which just says you need to have a bigger market share or a bigger, bigger share of voice than your market share. And that, yeah. that's how you right size it for company size, right? Obviously, a small company can't spend what Coke spends, but a small company doesn't need to spend what Coke spends. The mistake I find small companies generally make, and we do have a lot of very small companies that advertise on LinkedIn, generally tech and finance companies, but we have quite a bit of small company business. It's actually the biggest part of our business is they don't reach enough people even given their budget. So they'll generally choose a tightly targeted campaign with high frequency yeah. when in fact the data I've seen would say that if you had broader targeting with kind of like one frequency or really reach, you'd get better results. In fact, the correlation between um, leads and reach is most strong if you look at our data. And so what that actually says is people who like the whole, I think narrative around lead gen is like, I'll tar target a very narrow people with a lot of frequency, but the data says you should do the opposite if you want leads. You actually want broader targeting within reason, of course, for a small company, but broader yes. targeting within reason is likely to get you your, your leads. And I think if you ultimately pair that broader targeting, even within lead gen, with slightly broad targeting for brand building, the Bennett and Field idea of 60-40, you know, or what we call kind of like people who haven't seen it as a cold member or a cold lead, and then people yes. who haven't seen messages of warmly, that combination, ultimately, I've seen in our data, big or small, produces the best outcomes. That is re that is really interesting the 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 reach to leads, you know, ratio or or whatever you want to call it because you know I think there is a, there certainly would be a belief that if I can you know I have my persona I know what they look like I know where you know who they are you know and if I can 
be pinpoint targeted accuracy, then the more time, like you're saying, the more time I can hit them with this message, they'll they'll eventually understand who I am, what I'm trying to offer. But when you talk about that broader reach, I am I right in suggesting that that is more about the reach in the category buyers, not kind of saying the That's reach right. of That's right. everybody who could never want your product. It's those that you have identified as category buyers. If you're CTOs and CIOs, for example, are your category buyers and your decision makers. That's where you want to make sure you've got the broadest potential yeah. reach. I mean, I can give you a really crisp example of this. Brilliant. There's about 3.2 million data scientists in the United States or people with data science skills. So that expresses to you maybe from an audience perspective, not a category perspective, how big the category is. Now, you should think about reaching as many of the 3.2 million people as you can. And that requires a very different type of bidding on LinkedIn. I mean, this is a tactical point, but I think a useful one. If you bid using the brand awareness objective, it'll allow you to optimize for unique reach, which means you'll get as much reach as you can against that category or universe of 3.2 million buyers. So that will optimize for as much of that reach as you can. If you do what most people do, which is you optimize or you bid on a CPC basis using the lead gen objective, it's going to show the ad to people who are most likely to click. That's a very narrow population. Yeah. And it's going to keep on showing them ads frequently. And so one is broader, not broad, broader with reach. And one is tighter with targeting. And, and the reality is that, you know, companies are far too narrow. Like they, you know, they generally don't reach more than two, three, four percent of a category. I mean, that's, that's comical when you tell somebody from CPC, yeah. they're like, what? You're saying in a given month, people don't reach more than two, three, four percent of their entire entire audience with their media. And you know, if you go to a big company, I hired um, I hired a woman who who works for us now named Kate Newstead, who's absolutely brilliant. Worked at Ehrenberg Bass, did a lot of work at a lot of the big CPG firms, and she couldn't believe it when she saw how little reach most of these companies get because she comes from Cody and Mars, where they're trying to reach reach you know thirty, forty, fifty percent of the of the category every month, and then they're making sure they reach everybody in the category you know, over the course of the year. And that just doesn't really happen in B2B. So it's interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, certainly one of the things I hear is people saying, you know, but we're not Coke, we're not Mars. And I think the point is you don't have to be like, that's not the answer. The answer isn't to no. think like, no, the answer is to think that you are them. It's to think like them, right. And right. behave in that way relative to your budget and your category. I think, you know, that reality is, is, is firm and fair, right. That, that you're, we're not, we're not all Coke and even Coke. You know, yeah, have you made a great point started. earlier, actually. It's it's in the same way that brand building is something that is built over time. Brands are built over time. Pricing power is executed over time. All of this is done over time. So a small brand can start reaching maybe 1% of the people in the 3.2 million data science category. And then maybe next year they do 3% and then 5%. And then over a decade, they're up to 10%. And then over two decades, they're up to 20%. I mean, if you look at even Geico, they had 2% market share back in 2000. And now right. they have about 18% market share. So like, they're such a big concept in yeah. my mind. And then the Meerkat's such a big concept probably in the UK market. But the truth is that Geico has gone from 2% market share to 18% market share, 16 points of market share in about 20, 22 years. So, yeah. you know, that's how growth happens. It happens essentially one percentage point a year. And that's all that needs to happen from a from a reach perspective, reach one, 2% more every year. And then ultimately in 10, 20 years, you've got a lot of reach. That's how it works. Yeah. And Geico have been brilliantly creative and consistent, which, right. which brings me on to maybe my next question. I love you. You did an article that was people don't buy from clowns. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And to, uh, to ruin the ending, people do buy from clowns. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that and how, you know, how you see that in the application of kind of the out, I guess the kind of the outcome of that article and what that means for B2B marketing. So maybe explain a bit about the the article first for people who haven't read it. Yeah, I mean, I can even go further back to kind of my my origination story. I had two professors that influenced me very deeply in my um, in my kind of like pre-university days. One was a Chinese professor, and that's how I ended up in China. And the other was a history professor. And I've always had a deep fashion, fascination with history, and it manifests in all sorts of ways. In the last five or 10 years, it has manifested in, I'm very curious about advertising history. And I think if you yeah. care about advertising history, and everybody should care about history so we can not repeat the mistakes of our forebears, then you have to read Paul Feldwick. And Paul Feldwick yeah. has written two tremendous books. And there was the story of Sonny Jim's and, you know, being the most famous cereal brand in the US and the UK. And, and in essentially, you know, the UK, they continued running very creative, very character-based advertising, and they grew for 100 years. And in the US, they didn't take that sort of more promotional, you know, character, whimsical, fun approach. They took a very scientific, very rational approach, almost like brand building happened in the UK, lead generation happened in the United States. So it's almost a split test. And what happens is the rational approach does not work in the US. They go out of business in 10 years. And there are financial reasons for that that as well. It's not just bad marketing. There's also financial mismanagement. But it is in some ways kind of like the history of advertising that most yeah. early advertising was was promotional and entertaining and fun. You think of P.T. Barnum and Carnival Barkers. And I think that's a really fun way to think about it is actually um, it's showmanship, really yeah. great creativity, really great brand building is, is showmanship. And what everybody wants to do is like after that period, let's say 1910, you know, there's this move to kind of like scientific everything. So there's a very famous book on scientific management. And then following that, there's a very famous book on scientific advertising. And what happens yeah. is everybody thinks that science and rational is the approach that works. And we have kind of that even through to Ogilvy. I mean, Ogilvy says a lot of things about creativity, obviously, and I'm sure somebody will, will disagree with what I'm about to say. But Ogilvy <laughs> was a salesperson. He started yeah. his career in sales. And I still think a lot of the Ogilvy stuff, though he's got a lot of great one-liners and was quite a showman himself, I would say his, the advertising style to me feels more like salesmanship, you know, and, and you still see you still see tons of salesmanship today. It's the entire industry of B2B. And then I would say yeah. in the B2C world, you see a different thing that Paul Feldwick talks about, which is kind of like the culture or cult of cool, where it's all about being cool, but cool by definition is a small group of people. The minute something becomes mainstream, it's no longer cool. So yeah, salesmanship yeah. is about a very narrow message in a very narrow moment. Cool is about a very narrow message for a very narrow group of people. Both of those things are at odds with showmanship, the origins of advertising, which is about reaching everybody and building mass fame. And that's really what we ought to set out to do is to build fame. We don't use the word fame or the concept of fame in marketing and advertising today nearly as much as we should. Yeah, because it's seen as a, a word, you know, fame. You just want an award, right? I love there. In in Paul's book, he he has the the quote from when kind of advertising started in the sixties, and it, you know, if the TV is in your room, the living room, and you're invited into someone's house and you're a guest, be a charming guest so you'll be invited yeah. back. And I always think that's a wonderful lens for for anyone doing any sort of marketing. Is if this is going to land in someone's inbox in their letterbox in their you know as as a presentation whatever it is is it 
charming and enjoyable and entertaining. Informative can be part of that, you know, yeah, but even absolutely. the presentation style or whatever it is that people, you know, and so that's possible. And that's, I, I think that's really interesting because fame, again, people say, well, fame, you have to be big, but like Gorilla, Cadbury's Gorilla, that's fame. Or they had loads of money and da, da, da. Yes, but, but that's not, you can create fame in other ways. And there's ways of you creating work that's, you know, entertaining, enjoyable, you know, all those, all those sort of things. So, um, yeah, it's the game is mostly built over time again. I mean, this is maybe the core, <laughs> the core point it's consistency. It is creativity yeah. and it is over time. I mean, time is the missing dimension in most of these conversations, you know, um, like the funnel. I don't like the funnel a lot of times because the funnel has no concept of time. Whereas like when we flip the funnel and talk about in-market customers ready to buy today, out-market customers, probably not ready to buy for six months or six years, the missing dimension of time is is something that we we would do better to think about like fame and building fame over time and leads in the moment or leads over time or you know sales in the moment sales over time it's sale time is often missing from all these things and brand building takes time that's if it was yeah. really easy to do and happened really fast there would be no durable competitive advantage to it the fact that it yeah. takes consistency <laughs> and creativity and investment and focus and discipline which basically nobody has in the brand building world anymore that's why it's still an advantage to do it i mean bezos talks a lot about you know if you think about things on a one-year time horizon lots of competition if you think about things on a three-year or seven-year time horizon very yeah. little competition yeah, yeah, it's uh, that's it's kind of interesting. You think about the the funnel because I always think like the funnel is based on a funnel which is used for timing things often, and we lose the whole concept of time in a funnel. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, I, I, mean, I do think it's also really a sales funnel. Point. It's originally a sales funnel. It's not yeah. originally a marketing funnel. You know, lots of these ideas are well, like one to one traveling salesman, door to door salesman. Yeah, yeah, and I, I sorry, I do think the yeah the point you know that you you make is is really valid that you, you have to. Be consistent, and consistency doesn't mean boring either. Again, I, you know, the David Taylor and the brand gym call call fresh consistency, and there's brilliant yeah. examples of brands that do fresh consistency. They actually use James Bond as an example of a franchise that does fresh consistency yeah. wonderfully well. And again, none of us are own those you know big movie budgets, but but I think you can think about you know how your brand shows up. Is it consistent? You know, is it? Um, does it stand out, you know, because a lot of, again, you look at our, our space, there's a lot of blue, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, you know, yeah, so, yeah. but what are the things you can do that, that, can, that can stand out? One of the other things I wanted to ask you about is the concept of performance branding. Now, I, is this a twist on Gary's V, Gary V's brand formance? A create, which I think he calls a create content at volume and at the audience side, or is it, is it different? I honestly didn't know. Uh, I didn't know that brand, Gary V had a, had the phrase brand formants. I, I generally like portmanteaus. I'm not crazy about that one. Um, funny fact, Gary V was the very first, Gary, um, VaynerMedia was the very first agency I ever hired when I worked at General Electric. And, um, no and I hired them because they did some very funny math around like the number of people that, you know, commented on this post as a percentage of the total number of people. And like, this is the number we should optimize for. It was almost very much, yeah, taking a performance marketing or kind of um, lead generation approach to brand advertising. I now recognize it to be completely wrong and backwards. <laughs> but Gary V is a tremendous example of showmanship. But I don't take on Gary V's idea. It's more that sadly, people outside LinkedIn, and we talked to lots of CMOs of very big and very small alike, you know, companies in tech and finance and manufacturing and, and education, people in the C-suite really don't like the word brand. And yeah. so this was an effort to try to be more 
because brand sounds like an art project. It doesn't sound like a commercial opportunity. It doesn't sound like it's going to generate cash flows. It doesn't sound like it's money wise listed. So the core idea is we have recognized this importance or the importance of speaking more financially about marketing. I mean, a gentleman who I deeply, deeply yeah. respect named Chris Burgrave has a book called Marketing is Business is Finance. And the point is like great marketing is just about managing your P&L and managing your balance sheet to make more money durably over time and outperform the market, right? That's kind of the idea. And he talks a lot about pricing power as being the primary way that marketers can measure that and grow that. But um, yes. Chris has also done a lot of work on this idea called the marketing finance interface, and the idea is there just isn't a lot of conversation between even marketing academics and finance academics. Like they don't talk to each other in the same way that marketers and financiers within companies don't talk to each other. But clearly, if B2B marketers and marketers in general are going to be successful, we have to do a better job understanding how to talk about the performance of brand building or brand assets in delivering financial outcomes. So that idea is that we're trying to kind of pull together marketing and finance and we care yeah. a lot about brand building. So, and the idea of Performance marketing isn't wrong in name, but it's wrong in execution. Like it's not just about a specific type of marketing delivering performance, which is lead gen and brand not performing, right? Because it's actually saying like brand doesn't perform, this stuff exactly. performs. And that's not yeah. actually true. Like what we all know is of course the balance of great creative broadly targeted to basically capture some current demand and create some future demand, that balance, that ongoing balance, that's the that's actually the balance that gives you marketing performance. Performance marketing isn't what we care about. What we care about is marketing performance. And so uh, we tried to kind of riff on that a little bit, but I feel as though that's not even where we're at anymore. I mean, I think we've migrated a little bit more towards being more explicitly financial and talking about it in, in terms of demand creation and demand capture, because again, that's supply and demand, that's economic language. That's what the C-suite cares about. That's what the CFO in particular cares about. Yeah. And I think getting close to mar the marketing function, getting closer to finance, I think sometimes we're terrified of finance, yeah. right? We're going, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that when we have to, but actually almost making that your starting point and saying, yeah. okay, work with finance on how we might make this because you know, if you can get an ally there, I think that can clearly, you know, smooth the path. Not saying that it'll be easy, but again, maybe back to that earlier point of saying to finance, let's try this in a smaller way and then prove. I think finance are more willing than we give them credit for to actually think in that way, right? Probably risk averse or maybe a bit more so than marketing, but it also helps, I think, with the, you know, demonstrating the maturity of, of the marketing function as well, right? Working in that way. And, and we have to reason oh, one quick thing here. We have to reason from where the money is, you know, like the famous thing about like, why did you rob the bank? Because that's where the money is. You know, like, why, why ought we to partner more with marketing? I'm sorry, with finance, because that's where the money is. They determine yeah. the budget. They determine your compensation. They determine broadly speaking and narrowly speaking, all forms of your compensation through your budget and your, and your pay. So we should work more closely with finance. And, and what finance wants to reward you on is company performance. And yeah. the truth yeah. is that marketers focus way too much on aligning with sales, though I think that's important too, and not nearly enough on aligning with finance. You know, And if you understand how value is created and how value is rewarded, then you can figure out how to partner likely with finance to, to explain that what you do to, to sales. And then that ultimately is, is what we need more of the alignment of, we need the alignment of sales and marketing for sure, but we need a lot more conversation about the alignment of finance and marketing. Yeah. I actually see it as kind of a, the kind of the three legged stool to be yeah. honest with you. And, and I talk about that a lot with people on my team is that actually when 
the finance person in market, the head of sales in market and the head of marketing in market are all in alignment, in agreement. And okay, there'll be, you know, moments where they won't be. But when it's when they're working together, then it actually becomes a much easier um, path. Not that it will be easy, but it becomes easier because you're you're able to then start navigating each other's organizations, particularly in bigger complex orgs, but you know, navigate that, but also speaking a different language. And so Absolutely. sales start to understand marketing better. And that's one of the big things I, I've learned is that sales really didn't understand marketing. So helping that is brilliant. Finance start to understand marketing and then you start to understand their world. And like, that's, that's pretty powerful. And I've seen that work incredibly, incredibly well. So we yeah. have a fun data point for you. Actually, we looked at one point with Chris Burgrave, you know, who used to be the global CMO of AB InBev. So, you know, one of the three or four most important marketers in the world in terms of, you know, status and budget and, and, and profile. We looked at how many people from finance work in sales and marketing we looked at how many people in marketing work in sales or finance. We look at how many people in sales work in marketing or in finance, just to kind of get to your point, like these three cohorts, these three constituencies, like how much exposure do they have working in the other parts of the business? And they don't. I mean, I think, you know, there's no more than 8% of people in any of those three cohorts that have spent time in sales or finance or marketing or sales. So these, these groups, just like in the academic world, yeah. the marketing professors and the finance professors don't talk. In the practical world, they don't talk either. So there needs to be more, more conversation. I know that that does happen at the big CPG firms, but it does not really, for all intents and purposes, happen in any meaningful way, at least in my experience in the world of B2B. Um, speaking of that, because I know some of the, you know, you're, you're working on research. and I know you've partnered with some of the, you know, the big players, but I know you're starting to work on some of your, your own research as well. Is that something you're working on, kind of working with, finance research and marketing research and trying to pull the two together? Yeah, I would say the two things we are most focused on just continues to be number one, trying to replicate more and more of the Ehrenberg Bass laws in B2B. You know, we've done it already in CRM. We've done it in business intelligence. We have done it in cloud, you know, three of the absolute biggest categories. We'll be doing it next year in in banking and in insurance. And honestly, all of the laws so far, they replicate. So it seems to me like the laws of growth are indeed laws. Um, so that that kind of bit around, let's call it mental and physical availability and brand building in, in that way, which I think is a really quantitative, really hard kind of, you know, metric approach to building brands. That's what I love about Aaron Burbass. It's very rigorous. It's very quantitative. That's part of it. So like, let's say that's performance branding, right? But maybe yeah. brand building. But the other part of it is very much is this idea of what Chris Burgrave and a bunch of these academics would call the marketing finance interface, what we sometimes call the alignment of finance and marketing, just because it's a bit more accessible language. That's the other big, part, you know, there's kind of two, two tracks within our, our research roadmap. One is performance branding. One is this, this finance and marketing work. And yeah, we've got, you know, we're working on basically putting together, you know, a program there. And I wouldn't say we haven't figured out quite yet, but it's obvious that, that we need to do more there. We have sponsored, in fact, this group called uh, at the university of Maastricht. That's the home of the marketing finance interface. We have sponsored, uh, sponsored some of their work and we'll be doing some work with them on pricing in particular, which I think will be very valuable to everybody. And then yeah. we'll do some work on like, how do you assess organizational marketing excellence? So it's kind of like the organizational okay. lens, the pricing lens, and ultimately we'll figure out how that stuff ties to ideas like, you know, risk mitigation, how that idea, how that ties to shareholder performance. So, you know, this stuff exists, but it needs to be pop in the same way the Ehrenberg Bass work needs to be popularized. This finance yeah. and marketing work needs to be popularized. And so we don't necessarily do the work, 
but we help shape the questions that are asked. We support the research and then we popularize it, which is really, I would say, what we do. We translate it or we popularize it. Which is fundamentally so important because I think, you know, ha- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank God you're good at it. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, I think it is really important that we, this work is happening, clearly being invested in by by LinkedIn, which is which is wonderful. And, you know, again, it's maybe going back to my, my earlier point, you know, making the case for that. And obviously the, the proof point is it's working and, you know, the investment continues to come. You know, it's just wonderful to see. And so really looking forward to, to that work coming out. There, there was a, a point about weathering the storm and you ask a great question. And this kind of ties to maybe some of that difficult uh, period we're, we're going through at the moment. Um, and you had something you said, like, if Warren Buffett were a B2B marketer, he would invest in a recession. Yeah. How explain that a bit to me? I mean, it makes sense to me, but explain a bit yeah. to me. And then how can how can someone listening to that today? How could they take that and use that to their advantage in this? You know, it can be challenging times for people. Yeah, I mean, he's got two very famous quotations. I often wonder if he actually said these things, or or because he's famous, they are just attributed to him, kind of like what happens with Mark Twain. But he does say, you know, um, be fearful when others are greedy, and greedy when others are fearful. And then he also says, you know. And I don't think he actually said this. I think maybe Rothschild said this, but it's um, you know, buy basically when there's blood in the streets. You know, and, and and both of those, by the way, one's about greed and one's about violence. So people don't like to talk about these things today, but <laughs> you know, but but those ideas are generally still true. And in fact, you know, if you look at all the research on marketing performance and firm performance in recession, and there's a really great paper that Ritson pointed us out, pointed out to us called Roaring, uh, Roaring Back yeah. from Recession from the Harvard Business School professors, whose names I don't recall. But you know, that paper basically says, you know, focus on operational efficiency and focus on effectively R&D, you know, um, which is marketing. And if you do those two things, you know, you will, you will roar out of recession. And then Peter Field has done work obviously closer to home, showing that firms that maintain share of voice you know, they end up picking up not just market share, but also profit gains. So, you know, I don't think anybody should ever look at a single data point and say that this is the right way to do things. But you've got Harvard Business School saying it. You've got Peter Field saying it. You know, there are a bunch of other studies. I mean, there's honestly probably there's, I think, a study at least from every recession back to 1929. And and I yeah. think, you know, even Byron, who's very skeptical of things, has gone through and and noted that there's at least a couple in there that are. Are, are, are pretty solid in their in their structure and in their results. And, and and they all effectively say the same thing, that if you can make an investment, you know, by virtue of the fact that most of your competitors either choose not to or too weak to do it, then you gain a competitive advantage in those moments. And you do it at a at a rate that you normally cannot achieve in, in standard times. Yeah, and it is interesting. I mean, because one of the things, you know, you hear people saying, well, media costs are have inflated like there's more you know it's costing you more to to do it across a year ago and all that kind of stuff but it, that's the same for all your competitors right so the playing field is level in that sense and so then it's knowing your as like your share of voice and you know how you can spend and what and maybe there's efficiencies you can gain as well maybe there's other things you can yeah. do that are, are more efficient um but yeah it is it's it, there, yeah lots of lots of evidence there but i thought that was a a great, a great one. And, um, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm interested in is, and we've talked a lot about some of the great people who are um, doing a lot of this work, you know, Ritson, Byron, Jenny, Peter Field, loads and loads yourselves. And there's a coming together 
I, I think at the moment of marketing beliefs, you know, that creativity and mental availability, you know, Jenny's new book on better brand health, like all these things. And it feels like for maybe the first time in a long time, there's some level of agreement in, in marketing circles. And I'm not, this is wonderful. And this is great. Like it, it truly helps us in all, in all ways. And, you know, but then is there a risk that, um, that we're not not open to any dissenting voices, and I don't know if there are any. So I'm just curious on your perspective on that. Well, again, I mean, we are not the customer. So let me just give you some data that would indicate to you, in my opinion, I don't think we have achieved any sort of consensus with the people that matter, who are the customers, the marketers. <laughs> okay. You know, the money that gets spent on LinkedIn. Let's just take that as a broad proxy for B2B. You know, it's maybe something like 15, 16, 17% at this point, you know, give or take a couple percentage points that gets spent on the brand awareness or the video view objective, which I would, I think is really about building brand, building mental availability. So, you know, maybe 15% of people would make this investment. And it's not even clear to me among that 15% that those people actually know about Peter Field or know about Jenny Romaniak or know about Mark Ritson, because we actually did a survey you know, a while back where we asked if people knew about Bennett and Field, you know, and this is a group of marketers globally. And I think 40% of people had heard of Bennett and Field. And the truth is a lot of those people probably said they've heard of them because they wanted to be seen as being smart, not because they've actually heard of them. So if 15% of people, let's say globally invest in brand advertising, I would say maybe 20% of those people know about the people you just referenced. And so maybe that's what 3% of people actually you know, so we can sometimes think because we all know it and we right. all like it and we all respect it and we all invest in it, that that's consensus. But in fact, that's, I think, maybe 3% of people and the other 97% of people still have yet to learn about these ideas and yet to join the revolution. <laughs> so they're still, okay, that's great. Cause that is interesting because, you know, I, I sometimes worry genuinely that, you know, there's, you know, is there just an echo chamber and I'm sitting in it because I, you know, I'm, I'm reading this, I'm, I'm, I believe it. I've seen it. So that's, I think the other thing is I've, I've seen the evidence of this and, you know, in, in a lot of examples, I think particularly for, for me, I've seen that in Germany, like where we invest in brand in the long term and it has made significant gains, like just phenomenal. Right. So I've seen it, I believe it. And, but yeah, I, I kind of was like, well, am I miss, am I missing some, am I missing the other angle? Is there, but you're kind of saying, this is still the angle. That Even take your doing. German example. If everybody was doing it, there would be a cancellation effect and there would be no gain. Yeah. You're growing because you're doing it. Other people aren't doing it. That means that's why you're growing, right? That's why you're making <laughs> a gain. I mean, there could be other reasons, of course, too. But, you know, a, a simple analysis would say, you know, there's an edge there. You know, investing in brand is is an edge. It's an enormous business tool. I mean, obviously, we all we both believe that. But, you know, I, I don't think most people in Germany are, are investing in that way, doing that. And that's why you see the advantage that you, you've achieved. Amazing. So for people who want to find out more about the, the B2B Institute, again, I, there is a web URL, but just Google B2B Institute. There yep. is so much information there, like honestly phenomenal. And thanks for the recommendations earlier on about, you know, where people should, should start off. Um, and then you mentioned the, the edge B2B edge program. How does that operate? Is that kind of for customers who are ready to engage deeper? Can you explain that one to me a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we pitch a lot of customers and say, you know, I mean, the general take on that is we don't think people do strategy, right? We don't think people do creative, right? We don't think people do distribution, right? We don't think people do measurement, right? Um, And we have a way that we think, you know, is rooted a lot in 
you know, many of the names, the thinking of many of the names that have been referenced today, but we think there's a better or different or opposite way to do it that'll give you an edge in the market. And so customers can come to us and we'll talk to them about that. And then they can choose to buy the entire program or they can say, you know, I just want help with strategy, segmentation, targeting, positioning, you know, or I just need help with measurement in particular brand measurement is very thorny. How do I do that? So we can help them across all of that. Um, or we can help them across just one part of it, but you know, it's rooted in, there's a different way of thinking that I would say is still contrarian, not consensus. Yeah. And if you want to use that contrarian and right approach to get an edge in the marketplace, this is the right program for you. And we've done it for probably a hundred plus customers globally at this point, but you know, LinkedIn right. has million plus customers, maybe 2 million customers, something like that. So, you know, we, um, that also shows you how early, early, uh, early everything is. Amazing. And I guess, sorry, with that, then we'll come, a ton of learnings, you know, you know, over time as well, yeah. thinking about this is all about over time, you know, and so that's only going to get, you know, I guess, prove more of the principles that you're advocating and then kind of make that even stronger. And, you know, so it's, that's incredible. It's an incredible amount of work that's that's happening. So, um, John, thanks so much for spending time with me today. I was really looking forward to it and really enjoyed uh, our conversation. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. I hope we can get a uh, a pint of Guinness in Dublin at some point. Uh, listen, anytime you're here, just let me know. I'll, I will come meet you. All right, terrific. Thanks so much for having Thanks me, Tom. So I really ready. appreciate it. From a distance, I have looked at and read and used so much of the B2B Institute's work to help me out. So it really was a treat to chat to John today. I think the ability of John and his team to take complexity and make it usable and applicable to the real world of marketers is so incredibly helpful. And as you could tell, I was trying to figure out how smaller brands with smaller budgets can apply these principles. Sometimes I think we get overwhelmed when we hear how this works for Salesforce or other big B2B companies. And we think, well, of course it does. They have the big budgets. But I think John was able to provide some really practical and useful advice to anyone listening today on where to start. If you search B2B Institute, you will find all their research and it is all free. So if you haven't read it and you're a B2B marketer or honestly any marketer, block out some great learning time on your calendar. So that is it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening to That's What I Call Marketing. If you did enjoy it, please do share and add comments with your feedback. You can get in touch and find all previous episodes on That's What I Call Marketing.com or follow us on Instagram on That's What I Call Marketing on Twitter, that's underscore marketing. And now you can watch our episodes back on YouTube. You guessed it, that's what I call marketing. For me, Connor Byrne, until the next episode, take care.